I don't know about you, but I love stories. I mean, I love epic stories, huge stories. And what if I were to tell you that one of the best stories I've ever heard, that I've ever read, I didn't find in a novel, I didn't find it in a magazine, I didn't find it online, I didn't see it at the movie theater or even a beautiful theater like the one I'm in right now. No, the greatest story maybe I've ever heard, the most epic tale of all tales, is found in the pages of the Bible. A slave girl is thrust onto the scene of world and biblical history. Her cousin risked his life along with hers to save not only their own lives against a Persian king and a Persian empire, evil men who want to destroy them, not only their own lives, but their heroism, their courage, their obedience to God causes them to save the lives of their nation. And in doing so, they actually preserve the messianic line. This is an epic tale. It's a story of intrigue, of politics, of geopolitical uh, impact. It's a story of courage. It's a story of fear. It's a story that's sad. It's also a story that is very powerful. This story will blow your mind, but most importantly, this story from the Old Testament will change your heart. What story am I talking about? Welcome to the book of Esther. So welcome to our series on the book of Esther, this incredible Old Testament book that has so much to teach us. This is the only book in the Bible where God is actually not mentioned by name. But what you're going to find is, even though he's not mentioned by name, his fingerprints, his divine sovereignty and providence is all over this story. And it's going to teach us so many good lessons. But before we can learn the lessons of Esther, we're going to need a history lesson to understand how we got to this point in history where this story took place. So let's talk about that right now. First of all, the people of God, the people of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, they had been conquered by the Babylonians. Famous story, King Nebuchadnezzar and his crew, they took them over, they went to war with the Jews and they captured them and they took them back into captivity. Now, the Jews were in captivity for a long time and a lot of your big time, great Bible stories came out of that time, right? We know many of those stories from Daniel to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But what happened later on in history is all those Jews were in exile underneath the brutal reign of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then another crew, another group of warriors came and fought the Babylonians and they were the Persians. And the Persians were even more powerful uh, than the Babylonians and they won. And when they beat the Babylonians, not only did they take them into captivity, they also took in the Jews 
that the Babylonians already had in captivity. So now the Jewish people, the people of God, have been under one brutal reign and now they are under the reign of another brutal uh, administration known as the Persians. And that's how we got to this point. And what you're going to find is the people of God are in trouble. They're in big time trouble because there are people in this story that want to take out the Jewish people. And there's a lot of history to it. What we're going to find out is there's a guy by the name of Haman in the story. And Haman is going to be one of the main characters. But Haman wants to kill the Jews eventually. And it's because his family history, way, way back in time, they hated the Jews because they felt like the Jews had done them wrong. So they were going to take them out. And he becomes a part of the story. And he becomes a part of the evil that's trying to be uh, perpetuated on the people of God. That's how we got to this point. That's how you're going to see that the Jewish people are underneath the rule of this terrible Persian empire. See, there's always a story behind the story. But what you're going to find is in the middle of all this evil and in, in the middle of all of this uh, horrible trauma and this drama that God's people have found themselves in, you're going to find that God is still in control. He's still in control. Sometimes looking at history helps us understand that wherever we find ourselves in the history of our own lives, in the history of the world, we will see that the invisible God is actually the invincible God. And even though you can't always feel and see him at work, you can trust that he is at work. And what we're going to find is the story of Esther is going to help us understand that. So now you know a little bit of history a little bit of history to get us to this point. But now let me tell you some of the main themes of the book of Esther that's going to help us understand it as we dive into this epic and dramatic story. Let's check out those themes right now. Sometimes it helps to understand an incredible ancient book of the Bible like Esther if we understand some of the themes, some of the things to be looking for. I want to give you three of the themes of the book of Esther. It's going to help us understand right now. The first one is the idea of divine providence. Again, what we see here is that God is not mentioned by name, but his influence is throughout the book. What we would say is it's kind of like a chess match. When you're playing chess, and I grew up playing chess as a kid, my school wanted me and a group of kids to learn to play chess because supposedly it helped you develop your brain, and, and man, I loved it. And if you've ever played chess, it's a beautiful old game. But one thing about it is there's kings and there's queens and there's pawns and there's rooks and there's bishops, all these different pieces, right? And the pieces move. They move back and forth, but there is a hand guiding those pieces, uh, it looks like they're doing all the damage, but it's really the hand behind the pieces that's moving everything, and there's a plan in place. That's exactly the way divine providence works. Our sovereign God is over all things. He's over every single thing. There's nothing out from under the control of our God and the power of our God. Providence is when we begin to see that he has arranged things. In fact, that's what the word means. Providence speaks of pre-arrangement. So what this means in a biblical sense is this. Divine providence means that our sovereign God orchestrates the affairs of humanity by direct and indirect intervention and arrangement. That means that the hand of heaven is throughout the book of Esther, even though it's hidden. Even though you see pieces moving, you're going to find all of these dramatic pieces continue to move. What you're going to see in the end of the story as you look back 
is that they were all moving perfectly in time and in sequence because the invisible hand of a sovereign God was moving those pieces. And what you're going to find as we study the book of Esther is this is true of your life. God does not change. We say he is immutable. The immutability of God means that he is unchanging. That means the same God that was moving the chess pieces in the book of Esther is the same God that's moving the chess pieces in my life and yours. And we live in a world where we look at the political scene. We look at the geopolitics of the world. We look at where things are headed and we wonder, man, is this thing out of control? It is not. Our God is in control. He is sovereign. And the children of God get to live underneath the beauty and the wonder and the power of that. It gives us confidence to live our lives. That's one of the themes of the book of Esther. Also, the invisibility of our God is one of the themes that you'll see in Esther. He's moving the pieces, but you can't see him. You, he is not manifesting his presence in a way that he does at other times. And there's times in our lives where we are going to have to trust God even when we don't feel him and even when we don't see him. The story of Esther teaches us that even when we can't see it, we can trust the sovereignty and the providence of God. And then finally, it's very important to understand that human responsibility and human involvement is one of the major themes of the book of Esther. You're going to find that God had a plan. He had a plan in place to save his people. He had a plan in place to preserve the messianic line. He had plans in place that he invites people like Mordecai and Esther into. And he invites us to him into his plans as well. And what I want you to understand is throughout the Bible, we have the interplay between the sovereignty and providence of God and the actions and activities and responsibility of men and women. We get to be a part of his story. Now, our lack of involvement or our involvement in his story does not change God's sovereign purposes. In other words, God's going to get his stuff done, but we get to be a part of it if we so choose to obey him. And what you're going to see in the book of Esther is several main dramatic characters, in particular Esther and her cousin Mordecai, they said yes to God. They put their yes card on the table and they got to be a part of what he's doing. I want to show you a couple of verses now from the book of Proverbs that will help us understand the interplay between providence and the responsibility and involvement of men and women. Let's check that out right now. Let's take a look at these incredible verses from the book of Proverbs 16, 1 through 4. Listen to what it says. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Watch this. This is the command. So that's kind of laying the framework, right? We all have plans. We all have the way we want things to go. But it says here that we're not very good at checking whether our plans are right or not. We're not very good at being self-inspective, if you will, to understand what's really going on in our lives. So we need God to do that. It says he's the one that can weigh our spirits. But then it gives us a command. It gives us direction. Verse 3, commit your plans and your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. In other words, if you commit to obey God, then the things you spend your life doing will actually matter. Even though our lives feel so small and insignificant at times, if we trust the Lord and obey Him, our lives actually matter. Listen to what it says, verse 4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, I can't think of verses that are more apropos for the book of Esther than those that we just read. I want you to understand that through the book of Esther, you're going to watch the invisible hand of God move the pieces, not just of people who love him and obey him, but God is so powerful that he even weaves the evil, the evil deeds of evil men 
the evil deeds of an evil empire with the Persians. He weaves their activity into his plans. He gets ahead, over, below, and around all that's going on and works it ultimately for the good of his people and the ultimate success of his purposes. This is a story that cements for us who believe in God and trust in God that we can trust him and that we can trust that even when it looks like the whole world is going crazy around us, he is still in control. He is sovereign. His providence is in place and we can trust him. Let's go in our Bibles now to the book of Esther and begin to explore this epic tale, this epic story. Esther chapter one, verse one, let's read it now. It says, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media and nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now let's talk about King uh, Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus was this amazing Persian king. And let me just tell you how powerful he was. We just got a description here. The Bible tells you of his rule and reign. It says that he was over uh, 27 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Now, if you look at that on a map, this is a massive area. You need to understand the Persian kingdom was one of the great empires and kingdoms in human history. And he, at this time, was the most powerful man on earth. It's the most powerful empire, and he's the most powerful king. Ahasuerus was not his real name. Ahasuerus was a lot like the name Pharaoh for the leaders of Egypt. Ahasuerus meant the king most high. So whoever the king was would be called King Ahasuerus, all right? But his real name was Xerxes. You may have heard that name. Now he's gonna have a son. His name is Ahasuerus. And he is the famous king from the, from the movie 300. So if you've ever seen the movie 300, that's him, all right? But back to the original guy, Xerxes. That's his real name, but you're going to see him referred to throughout the book of Esther as Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus was a powerful king. In fact, when you look at that map, what you're seeing is that he was king over almost the entire known world at that time. Where people were, pretty much, he was in charge. There was just a few slivers of the civilized world at that point that he did not rule and reign. And what you're going to find is he wants to rule and reign the whole world, just like most dictators and insecure kings do. And he wants to rule over the world. So what does he do? Well, the Bible introduces us to him in his third year of his reign, and he's throwing these massive feasts, these massive festivals. Why is he doing that? He's doing all of this because he's trying to shore up his uh, splendor and trying to remind the people of his kingdom that he is powerful. It's kind of a display, if you will, of just how powerful he is. Now, why is he spending all this money and doing all of this? Well, it's because he's got a plan in mind. He wants to, and we know this from history, he wants to attack one of the other areas that he does not rule over yet, and it's Greece. He wants to go to war with the people of Greece. 
and he is preparing his people to support him in that war. So how does he do it? He reminds them all of how great he is, puts on a lavish display of just how great he is. Let's read more. He, he doesn't only do the first feast, he continues. King Hasserus in verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king made a, another feast, lasting seven days, for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And I want you to hear the description of what this party looked like. Verse 6, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster and turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. Do you see this huge display? I want you to see what's happening here. You need to get to know this king because King Hasserus, the only reason you put on a display like that is if you're a little bit insecure. Even with all the power he had, he wanted more power and, and he's actually an insecure guy and he needs to show the world how great he is. Maybe he's trying to remind himself how great he is because he knows he's about to attack another group of people that are very powerful as well and he wants to go to war. That is the scene that we get here when we begin to learn about King Hazarus. Now let's look at what happens in verse 9. We get introduced to his queen. We now know King Hazarus, but now we're going to learn about Queen Vashti. It says in verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now listen to what happened in verse 10. So he has a queen. And it says here on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. That means he was drunk. It says this, He commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. And what did he command them to do? To bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his units. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Now, this is a very interesting scene because the king of Persia had total power. It didn't matter who you were. You did what he said to do. He was a brutal dictator and he had total power, all right? And he has this queen, Vashti, and he gets drunk and he's got this huge party going on and they're drunk and there's a bunch of men hanging out and eating food and, 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 and engorging themselves and eating all this food and drinking all this wine. And then he decides that he's going to parade his beautiful wife Vashti out. And what most people believe when they see the writing here, and I want you to understand just how cruel he was and how lewd this environment was. What it means when it says that she's going to walk out and wear a crown is that she probably was forced to come out naked. That's what he wanted. He wanted her to come out wearing only her crown. And Vashti does a very brave thing here. And we don't have time to totally go into her story. Uh, but in subsequent weeks, hopefully we can explore with some of our extra material that we do for this series, the brave position this woman took for her own dignity. Vashti turned him down. And she knew this could cost her her life. And although it doesn't actually cost her her life because she was probably a, a new mother at that time, she had probably just given birth to his son, uh, she is going to lose her place. She is going to eventually lose the kingdom. But what we have here is a huge blow against an insecure king. This is a guy throwing a party to show everybody how strong he is. And suddenly he's wanting to go to war against Greece and he can't even control his own wife. 
He can't even make her do what he wants her to do. So he is angry. He is totally incensed. So now what's going to happen? Most powerful guy in the world's wife has turned him down. He's embarrassed and he's trying to build a case to go to war. What will happen next? Let's check that out right now. So now we have an angry king and we have Queen Vashti who has decided that she will not parade out in front of all of these men in a lewd way and nakedness only wearing a crown. So he's angry and also the people around him who are in charge are also very afraid that her example is going to go throughout the kingdom and take him down. They think, man, if if you can't control your wife, they're not going to follow you and they're going to think less of you. So they come up with a plan. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1 of Esther. It says this, They said to the king, If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes. You may have heard that before, the law of the Persian and the Medes. That comes from the Persian Empire. It comes from King Hasherus and other kings of the Persians because when they made a law, it is irrevocable. That's how they did it. They used a signet ring to put it into place and once they said it, it was law and nothing could change it. Nothing could change it. So they wanted to make this official. And look what it says. So that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. So what happens here? The king liked it. He liked that idea. He's insecure. He wants to get Vashti and put her in his play, in, in her place. And he wants the people to see how powerful he is, so he goes for this. Now listen to this. So in a flash, what has happened is this incredible drama takes place where a woman refuses to be totally uh, uh, undignified by walking out in front of these men, makes her husband mad, and all of this drama is playing out, and now the crown is taken from Vashti. She is removed from being the queen and now a plan is hatched to try to find another queen for King Ahasuerus. And what you don't understand is you can already see, if you know the story, you you need to understand that right now in this moment, God is working the plan. God is working a plan to save his people right now. A drama that you would think has nothing to do with God and his people has everything to do with God and his people. God is moving the chess pieces. He is moving things the way he wants them to move. And while all of this is going on, the book of Esther now introduces you to two of its main characters. Now, let's meet Esther and Mordecai. Let's now go to Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, after these things. Now, when it says after these things, you need to know a little history lesson there. What happened after Vashti turned him down and she gets kicked out of being the queen, well, he goes to war with Greece. He, he shows his power over Vashti and he goes to war with Greece, but it's a huge failure. Four years he warred against Greece, history tells us, and they won. He had to come back a defeated king. So after all of that drama... King Ahasuerus, already insecure, comes back. Now, he still has his massive kingdom, but he has lost for the first time. And he is now feeling down, and he is feeling depressed, and everyone around him wants to make sure he's okay. All of that is going on, and it says, after these things, that means four years have passed, and they lost a big battle against Greece. 
When the wrath of the king Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, and this thing pleased the king, and he did so. So what happens now is to make the king happy again, they're going to find him a new queen. And how are they going to do it? It's brutal, it's vile, it's horrible. What they decide to do is they're going to take all of the young virgins in the land, all of the beautiful young women, and they're going to basically bring them into captivity and spend months and months and months making them even more beautiful by giving them the best treatments they can, all in preparation for them to have their moment with the king. Now, without me going into detail, you need to know that it is exactly what you think it is. It's as brutal and horrible and sexually exploitive as it sounds like it is. This is brutal. This is real harsh life on this side of the fall in the Garden of Eden. This is what sin looks like. This is what evil looks like and treachery looks like. And yet what you will see through this story is even in this brutality, in this abuse of women, in this terrible environment, God is still at work and God is not defeated and God is still doing amazing things. And you and I can trust that in our lives as well. So here in this story we see that God is still moving the pieces. And all of this is going to happen so that a woman named Esther can step onto the stage. So now while all of this drama is going on, while all these things are happening, there's two people that have no idea that their lives are about to change that are woven into this story. Look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. While all this is happening, while the beauty pageant is being set up, uh, it says this, verse 5, in Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so do you see what's happening here? There is a woman, a young girl really, Esther, who's an orphan, slave girl. She's one of the captives, but the Bible says she's beautiful. And she'd been brought up by Mordecai, who's really her cousin, probably acting like a guardian. And they both are good and obedient to God people. And what you're going to find is God was in the middle of this story. He made her beautiful on purpose. He gave her character on purpose. He gave Mordecai wisdom on purpose. And now you're introduced to two of the main characters in the story. And what you see is the epic events of kings and queens and now slave girls and just a normal Jewish man are all about to collide. Because what's going to happen now is Esther is going to be brought, because of her beauty and because of her purity, she's going to be brought into this harem, if you will, that's waiting on their chance to be with the king. It's horrible, but God's going to work in this horrible story. And he can work in our tough and dark stories as well. Esther is taken into that harem. She's treated like all the rest of the girls. She's given beauty treatments. And then her moment comes. And now our director of women ministries and our director of family ministries at Three Circle Church, Christy Sullins, 
is going to introduce you to Queen Esther. And now we've come to Esther's night with the king. You've gotten a better taste of the story that is the queen's search in the, for the king of Persia. It's not pretty. It's been painful. It has cost hundreds of girls hope and future. And what we want right now is for the story of Esther to display God's sovereignty by him stepping in. Surely he can rescue her right now. Surely, in verse 14, her story can be done and she can return to the life that she was, that she was walking towards. But the reality of it is there's a verse 15 and the story continues. And so what do you and I do when the sovereignty of God doesn't create the circumstances that we want? What do we do with a story where a young girl is going to live out circumstances that she had no choice in on the demand of a king and the hope that something good would come out of it. So on this night, her night to go before the king, let's look in scripture, not to find a moral lesson or something to make the story feel better, but to see what God can do when his sovereignty is active in our circumstances. And not only can it change the story around us, it changes the story in us. Let's take a look. In chapter 2, 15, we see Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go before the king, she did not ask for anything except for, for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested Esther gain, to use for favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month of the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all of the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in Vashti's place. The king held a great banquet for all of his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. And he freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. We don't have to look very far to find hope in the circumstances from our sovereign God than to see in verse 15, a little line, and it's only added in this verse, and it's tucked away one more time in chapter 9. Esther, the daughter of Abihel. See, er, Esther's circumstances, they did not change her identity. We hear her described as orphan, slave, exile, cousin to Mordecai, virgin, as a part of a twisted beauty pageant, but before Esther steps into the bedroom of a king, God puts into scripture, she is the daughter of Abihel. And why that matters is Abihel was a Jewish man, a Jew exiled from his homeland, but not separated from his God. 
and not separated from his God and not separated from the promise that God had given his people that I will be your God and you will be my people. So that means Esther, even living as an exile, facing the reality of being chosen for the king, can know her identity, whether titled harem or queen, is still set as daughter of Ebahel, Jewish man, child of God, with a promise to keep. And that matters for us because our circumstances give us labels. They give us titles that if we're careful, we're not careful, we'll take them on as our identity. We become the divorcee, the failure at our job. We become the one that's infertile. We become the one who has a prison record or the one who is abandoned. And what every believer can find right there in verse 15 is when it comes to the people of God, our circumstances may go all around us, but he has set our identity. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God, unchanging in who we belong to, and his sovereignty stays with his children. There is hope. Our circumstances don't set our identity. The next thing we see from these small verses as Esther heads to the king is that her circumstances didn't change her behavior. Verse 15 tells us that Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. Now, I'm going to be honest. I am the middle of three daughters, and I kind of know what it's like to fight for bathroom time, to fight for attention, to fight for the clothing that I want. So imagine Esther, who is in this harem of preparation with over 400 women. It is the sovereign hand of God itself that she found favor in anybody's eyes. She was the pretty one. She was the one that Haggai singled out, who gave favor to. But the reality of it is, if she didn't buy her favor, what we see is it says that Esther gathered favor. She gathered favor in the eyes of those. That's an active verb. And for you that didn't like English class, that matters because it means that Esther didn't sit around. She didn't share her story of circumstance to gain sympathy. She didn't bemoan or complain that she should have gotten out of it. She was already an orphan. She was already a slave. She was already in exile. No, Esther lived with a countenance and a behavior that literally gathered favor from the people around her. What does that look like? Well, if you and I are believers, then we've been given the litmus, the test to know if our behavior lines up in a way that would gather favor. In Galatians 5, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. What do we, what do we uh, put out that can be gathered in favor? Did it, does our countenance, does our behavior look like Esther's? Do we have patience? Are we long-suffering? Or are we making the people suffer long around us? Are we showing love, love to other people that maybe we wouldn't have chosen to be around? 
Are we living in a way that displays God's faithfulness? And so we are faithful. Here is the reality that Esther's circumstances, in the middle of it, where she had no control, she showed wisdom. She followed where Mordecai gave her the words to, to keep her heritage a secret. When Haggai suggested to her, here is what I would do to gain the king's favor, she listened. She didn't have to have it her way. She didn't have to prove that she was the best. When she went before the king, she didn't use that as a time to list out the terror of her life. Esther lived so that her circumstance was affected by her behavior, but it was for the good. She made it easy to find favor in the eyes of the king, in the eyes of Haggai. Esther wasn't a pushover. She didn't lay down and suffer. She was a real woman facing circumstances that hopefully you and I will never face. And yet what she did is day in and day out lived in a way that she could find favor. She showed joy. There was peace in her. What does it look like for us? How do our circumstances affect our behavior? Are we a people that make it hard to find favor because we are right or we've been wronged because we would do it differently or we just don't want to do it any other way? Or as you are living out the circumstances, and understand there are circumstances that some of us bring on ourselves, and then there are just the real-world, hard-life things that happen that we don't have a control over. Who are we going to be in those circumstances? What do the people of God look like when we're believing in His sovereignty, but His sovereignty hasn't changed our circumstances for the moment? For Esther, she never allowed her character to be altered by her circumstances. And that is something that when every child of God lives out, then we too can find favor in the people around us. One of the last things that we see in this chapter, in these few verses in chapter two, is that Esther's circumstances, they didn't change her future. You may say, well, yeah, the door to that bedroom closed. And that circumstance was real for her. And she did. She had to live out that circumstance. She had been living out circumstances for years. From a young child being an orphan, she lived out the circumstance of, of being an orphan, being dependent on a cousin. All her life, she had known the reality of living in a place that was not her home, of being the exile, of being the outcast. And yet... Her future wasn't that. And when the bedroom door closed on that king and that soon-to-be queen, we want to rail against God because his sovereignty didn't stop that circumstance. But all it takes is for you and I to keep reading to know that what he was doing was so much bigger and so much more powerful and would change the world in such a different way there was future beyond that circumstance. And that's what Esther lived in. She would gain the title queen. We are introduced for the first time 
to the new queen of Persia. And what we know is the labels that go for her, behind her, they don't continue in the rest of the story. That's not who she is anymore. And God uses the story that he's writing in his sovereignty to tell the story of what, when his hand is active amongst his people, that the future is always on up until the very last breath of life. And this matters to me and it matters to you. It matters if your circumstance of age is telling you you're no longer relevant. It matters if the circumstances that you said were required for a future, whether it was a spouse or a family, they haven't happened. Esther's proof, sovereignty tells a different story. Sovereignty defines future differently. It matters if there is shame on the labels that you carry because God doesn't build futures on stones of shame. He builds them with a focus on what is before. I love Romans 8.28 because it is the reminder that God is working all things to our good. Not our highlight reels. He's not work, working our social accomplishments to our good. He is sitting in our life, knowing the details, knowing our inner struggles, knowing the brokenness, knowing the failures, knowing the hopes. And he is working all of that for our good. The hard lesson for us is that our good doesn't always match up with his good. And our timing rarely matches up with his timing. And our definition of sovereignty can often reject the painful circumstances. But the reality in these few verses of Esther, we see that when it comes to the children of God, God never stops moving. He anchors us to his name as identity. He calls us to live as a people that can be found favor because we reflect him. And that he reminds us that our future is set, but it's set on him. It's set in his story. We're not carrying the weight of our own accomplishments. All of the history that comes from my line doesn't rest on me. Like Esther standing before a door willing to walk in, our steps in God's sovereignty require the moments of faithfulness and the moments of trust and the moments of surrender that we have in the circumstances around us. And so when we look at Esther, our big question is, where do we go from here? Immortal, invisible God, only wise, enlightened, accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as night, no wanting nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above, thy clouds which
your fountains of goodness and love to all life thou givest to both great and small in all life thou livest the true life of all we blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish but not change it feet. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all filling their sight. Oh Lord, we would render, oh help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Immortal, invisible God, only wise in light, inaccessible, hid from my eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we So what an amazing story, right? Week one of Esther. We had a lot to set up, a lot of foundation to lay. But as you've heard the story of Esther and Mordecai, just the beginning of it, and as you see all of these things happening, in week one, we went from Esther being just a slave girl in total anonymity to now being thrust onto the world stage, a big stage, a stage like this one, uh, a stage that she didn't choose, but a stage that came to her nonetheless, just like that. What does it tell us? What do we do with this story? Let me tell you three things. Number one, I want you to know this. Even though you don't always see God at work, He is always at work and you can trust Him. You can trust that God's providence and His sovereignty is true today just like it was for Esther and Mordecai. You can trust that He's in control. He's not out of control and He is moving the chess pieces all around us. And that enables us to live fearlessly. It enables us to not be anxious and worried. It's why Jesus could say uh, to us to not worry about anything. It's why the Bible says more than anything else in the New Testament to not fear. Why? Well, stories like Esther reminds us that even when it looks like everything is falling apart, God is still in control. Secondly, your life may feel insignificant and small, but your life matters. The book of James says that our lives are nothing more than vapors, but, but those vapors matter. They're quick, they're fast, they're succinct, but they're vastly important. Esther had no idea that living a life of purity and obedience up until that point uh, would cast her onto the world stage. She had no idea that in a moment uh, everything could change, and that's true for you and I. So our job as Christians and, and God followers is to be obedient every day, knowing that even in the mundanity of our lives, the mundane things, that God can do great things. Even in those small, insignificant decisions we make every day, God is at work and you never know when a day may turn out to be a day. A moment may turn out to be a moment that changes everything in your life. Always remember that. And then finally, we're reminded that the darkest of situations God can still work in. This is no fairy tale. This is no kid story. This is a brutal story of trauma and abuse 
and a dictator and a horrible kingdom. It's vile. It's dirty. But it's also beautiful because there is no darkness that God can't shine his light into. And this story reminds us of that. Today, no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark and vile it may be, you can find the light of God if you will look for it, if you will grab onto it. Mordecai did, Esther did, and you and I can as well. Today, we can trust that even in our lives that seem hard and difficult and dark at times, God's at work. And we can trust the hand of a sovereign God. Well, it's been a great launch to our series on the book of Esther in this beautiful historic theater. You know, God is using this ancient story to speak to us today. I'm confident of that. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we thank you for how your word speaks to our hearts and to our lives. We thank you that the story of Esther is one that we can apply to our own lives, helping us to see today that no matter what, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that you are at work. God, I pray that you would convince our hearts and our minds again today that even when it appears that you are absent, that you are there, that you are alive, and that you're working. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are God with us. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. So I encourage you, as we walk through the book of Esther over these next six weeks, to dig into reading it for yourself. You can do so by locating it within the Old Testament portion of your printed Bible or through digital means such as uversion.com or the Bible app on your smartphone. It will be well worth your time reading through the book of Esther. And today, if God is leading you toward a spiritual decision, such as confessing Him as your Savior or being baptized, please let us know. We would love to reach out to you and help you with your next steps. Next Sunday, we will continue to gather on site at our campuses, including our children's environments at the times you see here. And if you'd like to remain online with us, you can always find us right here on Sundays at one of these four times. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.